Isaiah 39. We have come to the end of the first part of the book of Isaiah. And uh, back when we began this study in Isaiah, we had mentioned that there were two major parts to the 66 books that make up Isaiah. And it coincides with a number of books, the chapters coincide with a number of books that are found in the Bible. In the Old Testament, there are 39 books. In the New Testament, there are 27. That adds up, of course, to 66. Well, it's interesting that when you come to the end of that first part, which is what we'll be doing tonight, coming through these eight verses of chapter 39, uh, that... uh, you get a sense of what the Old Testament has has been about from the standpoint of the law. But as you enter into chapter 40, as we will next time, the next time that we're in this particular uh, book, you realize that it offers comfort, as you see. You can kind of sneak a peek, if you will, to verse, verse 1 of chapter 40. Comfort ye my people, which is the comfort that we, of course, will receive in the next 27 chapters. Of course, there's not all (laughs) a bed of roses, but uh, it does give us a taste of what the New Testament is about in the 27 uh, books of the New Testament in the 27 chapters of Isaiah, the last part. So with that in mind, we look at verse 1 and verse 2 of Isaiah 39. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah was pleased with them and showed them the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices and precious ointment, And all his armory, all that was found among his treasures, there was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for your word this evening. We ask for the anointing and blessing of your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes, O God, our ears and our hearts to receive your word to receive its truth, to receive its instruction, its correction, its certainly its, its uh, instruction to our hearts. But we pray, Father, that you will bring forth the wisdom that is necessary for us to live our lives in such a way that we walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling. We ask this, Lord, tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. The world of international politics is a sneaky sort of thing. Because there's always this underlying current of deception running just beneath 
the surface of negotiations between one country and another, between a confederation of states and rogue states, as it were. So often what's reported on the news is one thing. What is really taking place below the surface may be completely different and qualitatively more dangerous than we think. Such is what we see today in our own nation and government in light of world affairs and, and conflicts. And we, and we all might wonder, what nation is really our friend? What nation is really our friend? What, what countries can we trust in the midst of such distrust? Well, this was the case in the time of Hezekiah, king of Judah. There was evidently a, a great miraculous healing that he experienced as he neared the age of 40, as we saw last time. And the Lord was merciful enough to grant Hezekiah 15 more years of life. As we saw last time, what we do with the time that God gives us is up to us to live it in wisdom and to God's glory. But one great flaw that Hezekiah had, though not so much evident early on, in his life was pride. Pride. I know that we've dealt with pride in various leaders before, especially in the book of Isaiah. But this is significant because, because of what the Lord did for Hezekiah. Think for a moment. Think for a moment about Hezekiah's life and testimony. Turn to Second Chronicles chapter 31. We want to see kind of a beginning and end, if you, if you will, of this life, of this king. And by the way, this good king. He was a good king, the scriptures tell us. Because he loved God. Because he desired to do what was right in God's eyes and, and really bring a lot of reforms to the nation of Judah. In 2 Chronicles 31, verse 20, notice that it says, Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and true before the Lord his God. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God, in the law and in the commandment, to seek his God, he did it with all of his heart. And so he prospered. Now this is an understanding that you get throughout the Old Testament. When we do those things that honor God, that please God, that, 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 that give honor and glory to the Lord, God prospers His people. Now, in a, in a sense, that's true today. But how does, he, how does He prosper us? It isn't so much that He prospers us just in, in, in the sense of material wealth or material well-being. I, I certainly am thankful when the Lord prospers us spiritually, when the Lord grows us in His Word, grows us in His love, grows us in, a, in His commandments. Well, with that in mind, we see somewhat of the beginning of, of the ministry of Hezekiah. But if you'll jump down to verse 31, notice what it says. And by the way, we are going to come back to everything in between. But in verse 31, it says, however. Now that word is telling, isn't it? It is a telling word about everything that's happened so far. However, 
regarding the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, which is where we are today in Isaiah 39, regarding the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, whom they sent to him to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land. Now, what was the wonder in the land? It wasn't just the healing that came upon Hezekiah. It was the moving of the sun, as we saw last time. To the extent that, uh, you know, they, they saw it obviously on the sundial. And that certainly interests Babylonians. Why? Because Babylonians were sun worshippers. So this, this was probably what was their greatest interest in all that had taken place. And this wasn't so much that they just had received the news that it had happened. You know, when the sun moves, everybody on the earth is going to be affected. So you get the idea now. So it, it says, uh, whom they sent to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land, God withdrew from him. This is sad, isn't it? Anytime you see that little phrase, God withdrew from him, in order to test him. Now, this last weekend we uh, talked a little bit about Job. And there was that meeting between Job and, and Satan and the lifting of the hedge, if you remember. And so this is kind of a, a similar situation. But the fact of the matter is that that here Hezekiah is being tested. And it says God withdrew from him in order to test him, that he might know all that was in his heart. God was doing this for the benefit of Hezekiah to see his heart. Where his heart was, though he had done so many great things, so many wonderful things, and did them for the Lord. You see, this should be an awakening to us. This should be kind of a wake-up call for us as believers in Jesus Christ. Hey, we, we do good. We want to do good. We, we want to do those things that honor and please God. But is there a potential for us to lose sight of that? Well, what do we know was in his heart? I want you to go back a few verses. Go back up to verse 24 now. Second Chronicles 32. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. Where does that do? It brings us back to the beginning of... Isaiah 38, last week. Okay. I just want to see if you're here. All right. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death, and he prayed to the Lord. And he spoke to him and gave him a sign. But, notice verse 25, but Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him. For his heart was lifted up. What does that mean? His heart was prideful. His heart was prideful. Therefore, wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. Because of his pride, wrath was hovering or looming over the king and his people. Then Hezekiah humbled himself. So, you know, I'm saying that, you know, this is kind of rapidly coming through this history here, but Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Well, we'll come back to that particular thought later. But is it any wonder, is it any wonder that this pride would occur in his heart as we read the preceding verse, or as we read the preceding verse, in other words, the, the verse previous to this, verse 23. Go back to verse 23 now. 
And many brought gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem and presents to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations thereafter. Hezekiah became famous. Hezekiah became famous. What happens to people sometimes when they become famous? It's hard to stay humble, isn't it? Oh, shucks, I'm just a humble, just a humble little country boy, you know, kicking the sand here and there. I'm always going to be that humble country boy. But when the lights go on, things change. So now the scene is set for chapter 39 of Isaiah. And the introduction of this Babylonian prince named Merodach Baladan. History teaches us that this Chaldean prince from the area of the Persian Gulf led a revolt against Assyria. Now who are the Assyrians? Now chapters 1 through 38 of the first part of Isaiah, all of Isaiah up to this point, has been primarily about Assyria. Well, this Merodach Baladan led a revolt against Assyria and he captured the city of Babylon and ruled it from 722 to 710 B.C. Now, I'm saying this in light of what we know about 701 B.C., which is when Assyria attacks Judah, or attacked Judah, I should say. Now, keep in mind that Babylon had not yet become a world empire. Babylon had not become a world empire, and so this prince was, in fact, a thorn in the side of the mighty Assyrians who would later take the city back. So Merodach would have the city for a time, and then the Assyrians would come back, and they would recapture it. And then what would happen? Then Merodach would gather his people, and they would recapture the city of Babylon again, and then the Assyrians would kick him out again. Just went back and forth, back and forth. He just became a, a, a thorn in the side of this mighty army. And it's interesting, in, 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 uh, this one commentator, J. Alec Motier, he, he, he would write this, because it, it, it seems to be really uh, a current thought. It, it seems to be something that's very contemporary in thought right now for what's happening in the Middle East. But he, he writes this about that particular time. To the Assyrians, he says, Merodach Baladan was a terrorist. Now, we've all heard the word terrorist a few times on TV this week or maybe today. This was written a few years ago, by the way, so it's an interesting thought that he brings to us. To the Assyrians, he says, Merodach Baladan was a terrorist. To himself, he was a freedom fighter. We've heard that phrase, too, about some of these... uh, Groups like Hamas and Hezbollah and uh, and Al-Qaeda, right? Freedom fighters. To himself he was a freedom fighter with his life devoted to the liberation of his beloved Babylon from Assyrian tyranny. That's who this Merodach Baladan was. The historian Josephus records in his Antiquities that Merodach was looking for allies against the Assyrians and who wouldn't want to be a friend of Hezekiah and the Judeans who had seen the Assyrians defeated. So we're talking about later on this happening. Putting this at the time when 
that, that 185,000 that, that were defeated, that, that didn't mean that all of Assyria was defeated, by the way. That was 185,000 that God uh, judged because they were coming against Jerusalem. We've already studied that. And not only that, but what of hearing about the miraculous recovery of, of Hezekiah from whatever sickness it was that he had when God told him, you know, you better set your house in order. Nonetheless, he gives them 50 more years. So, you know, they hear about this miraculous recovery. What about the sign of the shadow on the sundial? The same thing, especially that why? Because, again, they were sun worshipers. There was then some sense of control of the sun by the God of the Judeans. I mean, didn't it affect everybody's sundial? So they had to know, not only by word, but by experience. So in coming back to verse 1 of Isaiah 39, it says, At that time Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. Well, this may have been the primary upfront reason for Merodach's visit, but the underlying current, you see, remember the underlying currents we talked about earlier in world politics? The underlying current had to do with bringing the king of Judah to the side of the Babylonians as allies against Assyria. So here are some things to consider then. Please think. Consider this. Hezekiah became a famous man. Others would come to court his favor. In Hezekiah's heart and mind, Judah's stability was important to the balance of power during that time. Now, not many people at all would have thought that Assyria would one day collapse and be replaced by Babylon as the world power. Not too many thought about that. Why? Because again, Babylon was made up of mostly terrorists, while Assyria was a mighty nation. Does that sound familiar today? No one would have thought that except for God. God knew. And here's the sad part about it all. Sadly, Hezekiah never sought God's guidance about this. There's no place where we see that in Chronicles, nor here in Isaiah, that, Isaiah, that Hezekiah sought the face of God for guidance. Do you, do you see how I started that thought? Hezekiah became a famous man. People would come to court his favor. He's considering, of course, the stability of Judah. He has seen what God can do to 185,000 Assyrians. But did he ever go to God and say, Lord, what do I do? It is painful, you see. Well, let me not get ahead of myself here. It's certainly another consequence, what, what is taking place. This is another consequence of deep-rooted pride. This is another consequence of deep-rooted pride. It's as, if, it's as if Hezekiah is saying, Hey, you know what? Everybody wants to be my friend. We, we've got the status now. They're coming to court us. We've got the status. I've brought my people to this place. Oh, there's the problem. Who brought the, the people of Judah to their place? Was it Hezekiah? Or was it the God of Israel? 
Now it's painful to think that Hezekiah claimed to have learned a lesson in humility through the sickness from which God had just healed him. Look at, go back to uh, Isaiah 38 verse 15, just a page back. In verse 15 it says, what shall I say? This is Hezekiah, we studied this last time. What shall I say? He has both spoken to me and he himself has done it. Now look at the heart of Hezekiah in the midst of his knowing that his life could end in just a moment. But the important phrase is the last one. Hezekiah says, I shall walk carefully all my years in the bitterness of my soul. That is a statement of humility, of humiliation, but of humility. I shall walk carefully all my years. There's a word that is oftentimes used in the, in the New King James Version and, and, and the King James Version of a statement made by the Apostle Paul that we are to walk, our, to walk circumspectly. That means carefully. Circumspectly means that we are looking all around us, walk, just being careful of our walk and what is around us so that we might walk right before God. Hezekiah says, I shall walk carefully all of my years in the bitterness of my soul. Well, it didn't take long for Hezekiah to get puffed up with such courtesy being extended to him. I mean, the Babylonians are coming with gifts and letters, and who knows what's in the letters other than the fact that some of these letters are probably requests. Requests for support, requests for aid of one sort or another. That takes place, you see. We see meetings going on on the surface, the superficial meetings of world leaders, but what's the undercurrent? what's being asked for, what's being decided for the next step in world uh, affairs, as it were. But we're looking at Hezekiah, and it didn't take long for him to get puffed up or to get prideful uh, with this, this courtesy that's being extended to him. So, so the true danger then of this kind of arrogance and self-importance is this. You find yourself filled with pride, you find yourself at odds with God. You find yourself filled with pride. You find yourself at odds with God. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Now these are reminders for all of us. Reminders for all of us about how easy it is... (laughs) to go from walking right with God to being prideful and taking our eyes off of the Lord and and, and considering just ourselves rather than what God desires. He says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. That's 1 Peter 5, verse 5, by the way. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. And notice, be clothed with humility... For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, you find yourself filled with pride. You find yourself at odds with God. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 6 now. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. Verse 7. Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Now look at verse 8. Be sober. Be vigilant. I don't know, and I'll go on in just a moment. 
But I don't know of any other time in all of, uh, in all of, of, of world history that we need to be sober and be vigilant like we need to be today. Just think about it. If we as believers in Jesus Christ know that we're living in the last days, if we know that by, by just looking at the signs of the times and the times of the signs, as we look at all the things that are happening in the world and realize that the whole focus, the epicenter, as Joel Rosenberg calls it, is, is the Middle East, and in particular it is the city of Jerusalem. If this is what's taking place, we need to be sober and we need to be vigilant. And Peter says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now here is something of great importance to understand. When the enemy of our souls is unable to defeat us as, as, uh, as the roaring lion, he then comes as the deceiving serpent. When he is unable to defeat us as the roaring lion, he then comes as a deceiving serpent. He is going to try every which way to take our eyes off of God, to take our eyes off of the situations and the problems and, and put them on ourselves. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 1, the Apostle Paul says this to the church there, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. I'm speaking, of course, of our relationship to Jesus Christ as, as the husband and, 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 and we as the church. But notice in verse 3 he says, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And so you see, the roaring lion comes, he growls, as I said not long ago, he comes as a roaring lion, but Jesus is taking care of that because he did what? He knocked out his teeth. He's a toothless lion. When did he knock out his teeth? At the cross. And when he rose from the dead. But that doesn't keep him, you see. It doesn't keep him from coming after us. And by the way, getting back to our, our, our text... What Assyria could not do with its troops and its armaments, Babylon accomplished with gifts. Do you see the deceptions? What Assyria could not do with troops and armaments and, and arrows and, and spears and whatnot, Babylon accomplished with gifts. You see, the Lord allowed the enemy to test Hezekiah so that this prideful ruler would learn what was really in his heart. And so that brings us back to verse 2 now of Isaiah 39. And there in verse 2 it says, And Hezekiah was pleased with them. He was pleased with this, this, this uh, uh, group of, uh, of, of ambassadors. And Hezekiah was pleased with them, and he showed them the house of his treasures. What's he doing? i just showing off. The silver and the gold, the spices and precious ointment and all is armory. You know, that's kind of like taking, you know, some of these, these nations like Iran and, 
and, and uh, Syria and inviting them to the Pentagon. To the FBI and the CIA offices and opening the doors and saying, look at this is all we got. Take a look. Take a gander. Take samples. All that was found among his treasures, there was nothing in his house or in all his dominion. That means everything that he was over to, to oversee for God <laughs> in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. He showed them everything. It gets frustrating. Listen, and I'm not trying to sound political here. But it gets frustrating sometimes when, when you turn on the news and they tell you that the New York Times has just put out lists of people's names or they put out some sort of thing that is just giving the enemy some of our secrets. That's really smart. Makes you want to do something to the New York Times. You know, Stop it! <laughs> That, that's a, another matter. We'll have to deal with that another time. What is Hezekiah doing? By the way, one section that we didn't read in Second Chronicles 32, would you go back to I should have told you to keep your finger there. Second Chronicles 32. I'm always telling you this, isn't it? I should have told you to keep your finger there. I'm sorry. Go back over there. Second Chronicles 32, verse 27. We didn't read this one earlier. Hezekiah had very great riches and honor. And he made himself treasures for silver, for gold, for precious stones, for spices, for shields, and for all kinds of desirable items, storehouses for the harvest of grain, wine and oil, and stalls for all kinds of livestock and folds for flocks. Moreover, he provided cities for himself and possessions of flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very much property. Uh, this same Hezekiah also stopped the water outlet of, of Upper Gihon and, and brought the water by tunnel to the west side of the city of David. Hezekiah prospered in all his works. Well, you know, it goes without saying that Hezekiah then was wrong in letting his guests from Babylon view all of this wealth because this is what he let them see. He was wrong in letting his guests from Babylon view all of this wealth, but this is what pride made him do. This is what pride made him do. When you bask in fame and fortune, it is easy to neglect your spiritual life. When you bask in fame and fortune, it is easy to neglect your spiritual life. It has been said that Hezekiah was, and I quote, safer as a sick man in bed than as a healthy man on the throne. He was safer as a sick man. There are even some commentators that said, you know what, God should have just let him die, not even given him 15 years. But then again, we don't know what would have happened after that. It could have been terribly worse. And of course, we know that it couldn't happen. Why? Because of the line of David. Well, we'll talk about that another time. But he never consulted the prophet Isaiah. Hezekiah had a prophet 
that had the heart and the ear and the mind of God, and he never sought his counsel. For had he done that, he would have avoided being as careless as he was. And Hezekiah was extremely careless in what he did. We no longer are true servants of God when we choose to want to please man. May I say that one more time? Because I don't want you to miss this thought. We, are, we no longer are true servants of God when we choose to want to please man. And let me just say to you that that's a thought that comes from the heart of the Apostle Paul. Because in Galatians chapter 1 verse 10, Paul says, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? And notice this phrase, For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Do you see now? We are no longer true servants of God when we choose to want to please man. If I am still pleasing men, I, will not, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And so in essence, Hezekiah was revealing God's glory to pagans. He was revealing God's glory to heathens. He was revealing God's glory to the enemy. Now understand, I'm not talking about revealing the glory of God in the sense of bringing testimony of the wonders and the greatness and the majesty of God in, in, in witness and in testimony of God that they might come to know God. I am just simply saying that He was revealing God's glory as if to say that you are throwing pearls before swine. So he was revealing God's glory to pagans as if he were a friend of them. Listen, as if they were his buddies and had received a favor from them. Well, he did receive a favor from them. What was it? Presence. Applause. Notoriety. How this brings to mind the words of James who writes in James chapter 4 verses 4 through 6 and, and, and he's speaking to the church here by the way folks he's not speaking to unbelievers he's speaking to the church and he says he calls them adulterers and adulteresses do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, Or do you think that the scriptures say in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this is one reason why I need to encourage you never to fail to watch and to pray. Do not put aside watching. Do not put aside praying, seeking the face of God. Why? Because the enemy never sleeps in his desire to get us to take our eyes off of God and to put them on ourselves. You know, the enemy really, does, you know, he could care less if we want, you know, he does, he's not trying to make Satanists out of us. Please understand something. The enemy doesn't, he wants to be, you know, he wants to be under the radar. 
You know, the people today who would like to call themselves, you know, Satan worshipers and, and this, I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's, that is the work of the enemy. So, you know, he, he, that's one of his kind of extensions of, 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 his, of his web, you know, to catch people. But, but the reality is with most of the world, it's a matter of just saying, look, I, just, I want you to focus on yourself. Why is it that the very essence of the New Age movement and all of these, you know, uh, spiritualistic type of movements is all about self? It's all about you being God. Because if we can just take our, our minds and our hearts off of the, of the living God, then we're going to put them on ourselves. We're going to put them on ourselves. So never fail to watch. Never fail to pray. Because the enemy doesn't sleep. His desire is to get us off the path that God has given to us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way. We sang that in that new song tonight. Through the cross, we know that he is the way, the truth, the life. But, but listen. Listen. He's the way. He's the path. We, we need to stay on Christ. We need to stay in Christ. We need to stay with Christ. And He's going to stay with us. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, I'll be with you. I'll never leave you. I'll be with you. See, we've only done two verses. Let's go on to verse 30. Isaiah 39, verse 3. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah. I have to say, Hezekiah is in trouble now. The prophet has come. Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say and from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, Well, they came to me from a far country, from Babylon. As if, to, you know, as if to say, well, you know, they're from a long, long, long way. They're, they're, they're not in any trouble. <laughs> they're from a far country. You remember in Joshua chapter 9, Joshua got in trouble because, you know, the Gibeonites acted as if they were from a far country. They were actually, you know, down the road a ways. But they made themselves up to look, you know, dusty and dirty and, and without food. And, you know, they made their bread to kind of look, you know, stale and have the little green patches on it and, and stuff. And, oh, we need help. we're not going to be a problem to you. They were a problem. The Gibeonites were a problem with Israel for a long time after that because they didn't seek the face of God about it. God would have told me, hey, watch out. <laughs> but they, they said, we're from a far country as if, well, that's not going to matter. and we're not, going to, we're not here to take you or whatever. And he, said, he says to them, oh yeah, well they came from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures. I have not shown them. I mean, he's just prideful. He's telling them, oh man, we've shown them everything. <laughs> ah, it's interesting that Isaiah asked Hezekiah two questions, but the king only answered one. Did you notice that? He asked him two questions, but he only answered one. Isaiah asked him, what did these men say? He didn't answer that one. And then he asked him, where did they come uh, to you from? He said they came from the Farka, but he never answered. What did they say? And so he asked him again, what have they seen in your house? Oh, that, he was ready to answer. Oh, they've seen everything. 
Now, I'm sure that Isaiah already knew the answers to the questions. But he poses the questions nonetheless for Hezekiah's sake, that he might answer truthfully and respond humbly to his mistake. But then again, pride and arrogance does make a person blind to their faults. And certainly he answered truthfully, except for that one uh, question he didn't answer. But he didn't respond humbly. Why? Because he didn't think he was making a mistake. That's what pride does. It gets us to the point that we don't think we're making any mistakes. No errors here. It's almost as if to say, well, listen, I showed them all of our might, so they can kind of just kind of you know, know where we're at. I want you to remember, this was a test, remember? It was a test. Do you, have, do you still have your finger in Second Chronicles 32? <laughs> I just want to remind you that this was a test. Look at the bottom of the verse. Well, look at the whole verse. However, regarding the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, whom they sent to him to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land, God withdrew from him in order to test him, that he might know all that was in his heart, to know all that was inside of him. And things were starting to come up that just weren't right. Jeremiah 23, verse 30, uh, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 23, verse 24 says, Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? Can we hide from God? See, God already knew what was in his heart, but Hezekiah didn't. God was revealing his heart. And perhaps Hezekiah was trying to be like Solomon. Listen, this is a, this is a possibility. He's trying to be like Solomon, who had done something very similar with the Queen of Sheba. If you remember in 1 Kings chapter 10, I want to read from verses 4 through 7. But the whole picture is, you know, this, this queen comes from Sheba, you know, down in Africa way, and just makes her way up because she has heard all of these great things about about Solomon, and so it says in verse 4, When the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers and his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. (laughs) And then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes. And indeed, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard. I'm not saying that Solomon was right. I'm just saying that, you know, that Hezekiah said, well, Solomon did it. Is it always right because somebody else does it? Solomon had his problems later anyway, didn't he? Makes you wonder. And so does Hezekiah think that he's, he's done no wrong? Does Hezekiah think that he's done no wrong? Let's go back to our text, Isaiah 39, verse 5 now. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Now this is a rebuke coming from the Lord to the prophet Isaiah. Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. What does that mean? The Lord of hosts is mentioned in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9. What does it mean? The word is coming from the Lord of hosts. In other words, it is coming from the commander of the armies of heaven. This is a strong statement. Coming from the commander of the armies of heaven. That is the Lord of hosts. And here is the word, verse 6. Behold, 
the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day. There's a reason for him saying this. What your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you. Has he had any sons yet? No, not yet. But he's going to have. And descendants. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, notice, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Very simply, and I know this is the PG-13 version, but very simply, a eunuch was somebody who was castrated, a male who was castrated so that he wouldn't cause any kind of you know, threat toward the harems of the kings. They had a very unique or eunuch position. Isaiah reminded the king, forget that one, Isaiah reminded the king that he was only the steward. Listen, he was only the steward of Judah's wealth and not its owner. Why? Because he says, hey, what was accumulated by your fathers? In other words, it wasn't you. It didn't belong to you. It was given to you so that you might be a steward for God. Why is it, listen, I, I don't understand this, but why is it that some Christians today want to impress the world with their possessions as if the world really cares as to how many vehicles we possess and the models that they might be? Some TV preachers have been good at this over the years, boasting of basement garages beneath a humble mansion, which they reach via their elevator that takes them there. What is that about? In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says this. He says, For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? In other words, why do you boast as if you got it yourself? Or if you made it yourself? Or if you produced it yourself? Or if you gained it or accumulated it all yourself? Why do you act that way? God says, I gave it to you. You be a good steward of what I give you. I love what it says in John 3.27. This is John the Baptist saying, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Simple and powerful. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You know what happens with pride? We're impressed, but the world's impressed. That's pride. We're impressed that the world's impressed. Hezekiah was impressed that the Babylonians were impressed. But all that he did in showing them everything that they had was to show them what they would eventually get from Judah under Nebuchadnezzar many years later, about a hundred, more, more than a hundred years later. Nebuchadnezzar would come and they would take everything from Jerusalem and carry it to Babylon. And they would take the children of, of, of Judah to Babylon. And then they would take the, the descendants of the kings to Babylon. 
In 2 Kings, as a matter of fact, uh, 2 Kings 24, verse 10 and following, it says, At that time the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city as his servants were besieging it. uh, Then Jehoiakim, king of Judah, his mother, his servants, his princes, and his officers went out to the king of Babylon. And the king of Babylon, in the eighth year of his reign, took him prisoner, the king. And he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. And he cut in pieces all the articles of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord as the Lord had said. The very prophecy given to Hezekiah would come to pass. But it would be the true riches of the king taken that would be the worst for him. What is that? The sons of Judah and his offspring the people and his children and his descendants. One particular fulfillment of this was the taking of Daniel and his friends into captivity. These were royal people, some of them. And Daniel as well. Daniel chapter 1 verse 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles uh, into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. Why? They were going to teach them so that they could take Israel and the God of Israel out of them and put in Nebuchadnezzar and Babylonian thought, Babylonian wisdom, Babylonian understand. Just, just clean them out. Brainwash them. And, and then give them a whole new... They gave them new names. And so on and so forth. Well, it is in Isaiah 39, verse 7, going back to Isaiah 39, it is in verse 7 that we find the prophet's first clear announcement of the still-to-come Babylonian captivity of Judah. And in spite of Hezekiah's reforms, all the things that he did as, he, as a good king, Judah as a nation would decline and it would decay spiritually throughout the next century. And it is significant to point out that Hezekiah's sin was not the cause of this judgment. Please understand that Hezekiah's sin was not the cause of this judgment, for the sins of the rulers, priests, and false prophets grew from year to year until the Lord couldn't take it any longer. And so in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 11, it says, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear an oath by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against uh, turning to the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations, and defiled the house of the Lord which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people. 
till there was no remedy. Now there's a question. There's a question as to the response of Hezekiah in verse 8 of Isaiah 39. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, At least there will be peace and truth in my days. Now, to some, actually to many, it appears that Hezekiah is just continuing to be a selfish person who is only glad that the judgment won't come until after he's gone. But we've already read that he was humbled by what the prophet had said. Going back to, you don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll go there for you. Second Chronicles 32, verse 26. Then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. So please understand then that, you know, while it, it appears that he seems to be continually prideful here and say, well, I'm really glad it's not during my reign. In actuality, what he is saying is, whatever you have said is right and it is good. Certainly there is that humiliation that is stated, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. He's been a good king. He's done good things. But he let pride get the better of him. It would then, of course, later on lead to the fulfilling of prophecy through the Babylonians. How heartless, you see, how heartless it would have been on Hezekiah's part to rejoice that future generations would suffer what he should have suffered. But what he is expressing more than likely is his humble acceptance of the Lord's will. And when you think about how David came before the Lord after his great sin, and he said these words in Psalm 51, verse 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. And there is no sense to apply to Hezekiah the continuation of any kind of prideful notions. For indeed, David would speak in positive terms of what God was going to do with him now that his heart had been turned back to God. And so, we come to the end of the first part of Isaiah with, with, with somewhat of a picture of, of that hopelessness that comes when, when you realize that you cannot keep the law without having trust and faith in God. Which, as we begin in, uh, in, in, in Isaiah 40, as we move on from there, and so many wonderful things that we will learn in, in, the, in the last part now of Isaiah, 
about the grace of God, about the comfort of God, about the hope that there is in God. But we see, as it were, the, that need, the necessity. I, Hezekiah had the necessity of turning to his God. Well, we have something that Hezekiah did not have. We have the completed finished work of Jesus Christ we have the cross we have an empty tomb we have the promise of the Holy Spirit poured out upon us we have the word of God from Genesis to Revelation we have everything that we need for life and godliness through Jesus Christ so we have a lot to be thankful for and a lot to count upon. So, shall we pray?